again. Let me uh, say welcome. Uh, my name is Andrew, and I get to be the pastor here. It's one of the great privileges of my life. And as being a pastor, one of the coolest parts of my life is that I get invited into the best and the worst moments of people's lives. I get to be there uh, as people are born and as people die, as people uh, break, as people um, break with their old lives and say these incredible promises uh, that I will and I do until death do us part. And I get to sit with them as they mourn and ask, what happened? Where did the man I loved go? And today we come to one of those big questions. If you're new to us, we have uh, committed to the next um, four weeks, including today, uh, starting last week, five weeks in total, asking life's big questions, not skirting around the issues because life is too short to avoid these questions. And so last week we asked the question, does God exist? And I argued um, from science and philosophy and existentialism uh, that God does indeed exist. And then I ultimately said all of those arguments are incomplete and maybe even wrong-headed. That how do I know God exists? Because I met the dude. Because he showed up in my life and he picked me up when there was nothing left to pick up. When the shards of my life were so pulverized that they would have had to been sucked up with a vacuum cleaner. When a broom wouldn't have got it done. And Jesus put my life back together and put me back on solid ground. Today we ask the question, why does God allow suffering? And as the choir sang, and as we sang songs earlier, I couldn't help but remember that in the darkest, most painful periods of my life, music is what got me through. Uh, in one difficult part of our marriage, I asked my wife to make me a CD of blues music. And she could define that any way she wanted. And I made her a CD of blues music. And we gave each other these CDs of lament. You, some of you guys know what CDs are. They were silver. They had music on them. You put them in a thing. Um, and one of the songs that, that I sang a lot during that was a song by a guy named Andy Ziff. And he uh, says, I'm not Lewis and Clark. I'm just a simple man. And sometimes I get lost in my questions. Like, why doesn't love answer when we need it most? Can someone give me the answer I need? And the chorus of his song is, I would sing hallelujah if I could recall what it means and just who I'm praising. But I don't think that I can express it in words. So I'll let the melody do my speaking. And then Andy Zip can sing second soprano, even though he's a dude. And so he sings this incredible just ditty to try to get the agony in his heart out. And I don't know if that is you, but I would bet many of us have asked this question. It's one of our oldest questions. When tsunamis hits and, and babies miscarry and war is perpetual and starvation is rampant, even though there is enough food on the planet to feed all of us, even though preventable disease is a plague, we sit back and we say, well, if there is a God, what is God doing? Where is God in all of this? When our families are torn apart by addiction and when a beautiful life is gutted by um, adultery when girlfriends break up with us when terrorists attack we find these questions in our brain if there is really a good god why is there so much evil in the world why a hitler or a holocaust or mao or september 11th we start saying things like i cannot possibly believe in a god who would allow 
blank. If God can really do anything, why doesn't he get rid of evil? It's not fair that people suffer so unjustly. In fact, Psalm 73 uh, that didn't just read for us is one such wrestling. The person said, my foot had almost slipped. I was giving up the battle to believe in any kind of God and that there was a God who loved me. That I was at a point in my life where that made no sense. He says, I was ignorant and foolish as a beast where I could not believe that truth anymore. That life didn't seem to have purpose and God didn't seem to be real. I don't know if you've ever thought those thoughts, but the Bible says a few, the same psalmist writing Psalm 73 wrote Psalm 62. And in Psalm 62, he affirms these two crazy things at the end of a lament and at the end of being attacked and gutted and ravaged by disease. He says these things. He says, one thing you have spoken, two things I have heard. He can count. He just knows that words have more than that. You can say a lot in a few words. He says, you, my God, are loving and you, my God, are strong. He says, you, my God, have all power, and with you there is unfailing love. That's the God of the Bible, a God who is omnipotent, meaning all-powerful, and, and omni-loving, meaning all-loving, that he is good and, and generous to us. And yet, uh, there is serious question and doubt about that. If God is loving and good, why does suffering exist? Either God cannot be all-powerful or he cannot be all-loving. Because if God is all-powerful, but he's not all-loving, then he doesn't want to solve suffering in the world. And so suffering exists because God doesn't care. He could fix it, he just won't. Or you say suffering exists because God is loving, but he's not powerful. God loves us, and he wants to fix it, but he doesn't have enough power to fix it. And so God of the Bible cannot exist. This is how the argument goes, made famous uh, by people uh, like uh, David Hume makes this argument. It comes into the media everywhere. You will see it in uh, op-ed pieces. You will see it in editorials. You will see it uh, on Facebook anytime a hurricane hits, anytime Maria floods Puerto Rico, anytime uh, these things happen. We'll say, where is God? The God of the Bible cannot exist. And I want... Uh, to just be honest, that today I'm going to spend a few minutes talking philosophically about that, that, that suffering does not disprove the existence of God. Uh, and then, because I don't, I understand that for some of us, this is a philosophical question. It has to do with uh, people far away in far distant lands, usually uh, with, with dark skin who are suffering. But for others of us, uh, this is a deeply personal uh, experience in our lives. It has to do with something specific in us. And I don't want to give you philosophical arguments to deal with real heart level pain. And so let me uh, just come to the, the realistic uh, fact that today I'm going to try, I'm not going to try and answer the question why. I'm just not going to give you an answer. Partly because the Bible doesn't do that in the way that I want it to, in the way that you might want it to, but I will give you something better. So hold on, stay with me. You see, the problem of suffering says that if there's so much pointless suffering in the world, there cannot be a good God. But the whole argument hinges on that word pointless. 
We see human beings don't have a problem with suffering. We don't mind suffering. If we see a point, if we see a goal, we will endure incredible suffering. Think about the silly stuff we will do to get in shape. We will run miles and miles and miles. We will invent whole devices to torture us, to make us fit. We will go through uh, unbelievable diets. I was at somebody's house recently, and their diet was a bunch of, like, it looked like something out of Star Trek. They were like capsules that had all their vitamins and nutrients in it. And I was like, what? Who, who, you've given up chewing. <laughs> what, a, what a terrible way to live. But it had a goal. It had a purpose. Maybe for you, exercise, dieting, that's not something you've ever t- experimented with. Um, but you understand uh, surgery and vaccines. Maybe you have had to, with your child, uh, walk them into a doctor's office and then had to hold them in your arms as they screamed and yelled and kicked when the doctor was trying to give them their tetanus shot. And, and you, you knew they were screaming and they were horrified and you, out of love, held them still so the doctor could inflict pain upon them because you knew that pain had a point. You knew that it was for something. And so human beings do not have a problem with pain or suffering. We only have a problem with pointless pain and suffering. Suffering when I do not see the point, when I cannot understand what's going on. I was talking uh, to John this week, and we were talking about uh, his soccer team. Uh, John's 12, and he plays soccer, and he's good at it. And, and um His soccer team is right at that age that I remember in sixth grade, I started on a travel soccer team, and our coach did something unbelievable. He made us run, like laps, like run and run and run, and then he made us run suicides, and then he made us do push-ups, and then he made us do like frog jumps and sprints and all kinds of things, and it was ridiculous. Up to that point, soccer was all orange slices and hugs and Gatorade. There was no positions, there was no, like, you didn't need to train for it. And I remember thinking, he was the meanest son of a gun in the world. I remember hating him. I remember, like, wanting to quit because he was mean. Because I didn't see the point. I could not understand the purpose behind it. But he was, he knew that if we were going to be good, we had to be in shape before we could be skilled. And so the argument that God cannot exist because the world is full of pointless suffering hinges on that word pointless. Let me just ask you, just because you can't see a point, is that proof that there is no point? One philosopher makes the argument this way. He says, if I tell you to walk into that, uh, that tent over there and look to see if there's any St. Bernard's in it, and you look in and you don't see a St. Bernard, then you can say reasonably that there are no St. Bernards in that tent. But if I ask you to walk into the same tent and tell me if there are any noceums in that tent, everybody know what a noceum is? Small neck, can't see it, it bites you, it hurts like Dickens. And you look in it and you don't see any, and so you come back and you say there's no noceums in it. You can't reasonably make that argument because you wouldn't be able to see them if they were there. And so there is... Um, so it believes that if there was a point to all suffering, I would be able to readily recognize it. But why is that true? Why would that be true? There are hundreds of thousands of things that I do not understand or see the point in in this world, but that may or may not make them pointless. 
to say that they are pointless is an arrogant statement that puts me in the perspective uh, only uh, due to God. It is to say, I know all that I need to know about this situation. You, you're out walking one day and, and you fall down and you, you break your leg uh, in, in a shopping center and the ambulance comes and, and you're, you're mad because you just broke your leg. This pointless, awful thing. Why did God let me break my leg? And the ambulance driver turns out to be really attractive and good at conversation. And next thing you know, you're married. Is that pointless suffering? Somebody forgot to put the wet sign out, like caution wet sign, and you broke your leg. Pointless? I don't know. Maybe more realistically for you, you live the agony, dare I say even the, the, the hell of addiction as you work your way from ledge to ledge to ledge to bottom. And you finally got into a circle where people would, uh, where people would help you recover. And you walk into AA, and, and some some man or woman there uh, introduces themselves as, uh, "Hey, I'm Chachi, and I'm a grateful recovering alcoholic." And you're like, "Grateful." You are grateful that you are an alcoholic. You are grateful for all of the hell that you experienced getting to this point. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm grateful. Because it was, if I had not gotten to bottom, I would never have learned what I now know. And if it took me getting that low to get what I have now, to have the relational intimacies that I have in my relationships, to have the honesty and integrity and character, I'm so grateful. college I dated a girl and this isn't to not that I ever dated anybody before Claire but um, I did I dated a girl um, and I was convinced that I was uh, going to marry her uh, and, and the, right about that time all of my friends started to get engaged anybody go through that period where everybody got engaged at the same time and, and everybody's planning weddings and and and, and I now think I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna marry this girl and the same I just thought I'm going to marry her on Saturday. On Tuesday, she breaks up with me. And I spent six months sleeping in a chapel because it was the only place I felt safe. And I remember being so mad at God. I remember yelling at God. It was the first time in my life where I cussed while praying. Yes, I am that broken. It's okay if you are too. You're welcome here. preparation for what is in my marriage and what I have and, and the woman that God has given me now is incredible no slight or shame to the other woman who is married and to another dude who I'm sure is better than me anyway the Bible is full of accounts like this these things where it seems to be pointless suffering maybe most famously uh, there's a story about a man named Joseph and Joseph uh, is sold by his brothers into slavery. And in slavery, uh, he uh, is then wrongfully accused of a crime and thrown into prison. And then in prison, he is forgotten and lost and there uh, to suffer for year after year after blessed year. And the end of the story is revealed. God uses Joseph to save not only his family, but millions of people across North Africa and the Middle East as famine comes. 
perhaps most famously in the Bible, is a man named Job. In the book of Job, this ancient book, maybe the oldest book in the Bible, starts in this odd way. It is the closest thing we have in the Bible to pointless suffering. It starts with God and all his angels around, and in walks Satan. And Satan says, I've been roaming all over the earth looking for someone. And he says, and all these people, every one of these human beings you've made, they only do, they only love you because you give them good things. They only love you because you're good to them. And God says, you essentially want to bet? <laughs> like, have you, have you considered my servant Job, is what he says. And it goes on, and it looks like God and Satan decide they're going to strip everything from Job. For no other reason than to prove to Satan that Job is a man of faith and character. Seems pointless. It seems like a cosmic wager. And in the book, Job wrestles for 39 chapters. Wrestles with all that's happening as his family dies, as he is afflicted with, sin, with, with sickness and illness. And God never shows up. Throughout all of that time, God is, is hidden, and then God does show up at the end, but God doesn't tell him why. God never gives him a reason. God never says, this is why you're suffering, or let me explain it to you, Job. No, never happens in the book. And it hit me this week that it would, if God had done that, then it would have reverted back to the first one. If God had showed up and said, hey, Job, hey, Job, I know that this is going to feel pointless to you. But 4,000 years from now, there's going to be 150 people sitting in a room in Cleveland, North Carolina, and they're going to be taught by your example and encouraged by your perseverance. And they're going to learn faith from watching your faith. And they are going to see the way that I was faithful to you and showed up in your life and the way that, that I, I didn't answer the question you asked, but I answered the question you needed. And they're going to be encouraged. If God had told Job that he would be one of the most famous human beings to ever live on the planet, if he would just persevere and sure up and stay the course if God had told him that then you know why Job would have been staying the course and persevering for the very reason Satan had said because Job got something out of it and so the whole thing doesn't but God does show up at the end and God does come into it and he makes an argument that's similar to the argument I made in the first place God says Job can you tell me why I made a crocodile can you tell me where I can you tell me why I made the world the way I did it? Can you tell me uh, how I conceived of a platypus? No? Okay, then this pointless question is probably above your pay grade. And I would explain it. I'm trying to explain it to you right now, but you're missing the baby steps to get to the big step. And so we're just, I'm just going to stay here with you until you tell me. Second part of this, though, is that the, the very argument that God can't exist because there is suffering, that there is no God because there is suffering, um, suffering is not actually proof, or that argument is actually better proof that there is a God than it is proof there isn't a God. And the reason is simple. The reason is very simple. If there is no God, then there is, more nat there is nothing in the universe more natural than pain and suffering. Far from being a problem in creation, pain and suffering actually become the propulsion force for natural selection in the evolutionary process. If there is no God, then killing and violence and natural disaster, then flood and volcano and earthquake are the most natural thing. They aren't a problem, they are a propulsion. And so why are you mad about them? Nature is red in tooth and claw, as one poet said. 
Why is your rejection framed in ethical terms of good and bad? Why is my rejection of God framed in that way, in moral terms? C.S. Lewis uh, said it this way. He's quoted in this great book called The Reason for God by Timothy Keller. Uh, But C.S. Lewis, this um, famous uh, atheist turned Christian late in his life, he says in this incredible way, Here it is. He says, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust in the first place? What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying that it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. For the argument depended on saying that the world really was unjust, not simply that it did not happen to please my private fancy. Consequently, atheism turns out to be too simple. You see, what happens is that I build an argument that says there is no God, and when I hit my conclusion, it undercuts the foundation of my argument because the argument was built on the assumption that there is just and good and morality, and I don't have a way to justify just and good and morality if there is no God, which I've just killed. And so the argument eats itself. But all of that is cold comfort to someone who is actually experiencing pain and suffering. It's actually... When you were in the hospital watching your beloved die, when you were sitting by the roadside as the ambulance comes to, to, to take care of uh, this lifeless corpse, as you are sitting in an empty house that was once filled with love, as you carry a tiny casket to a grave, the last thing you want is somebody spouting philosophical arguments. The last thing you want is platitudes. The last thing you want is an explanation. In that moment, what I need most is someone to sit with me, to be with me. All of the philosophy doesn't settle my heart. The anger is still there. It doesn't get God off the hook for all the pain in the world, and it doesn't excuse God. But the Christian God is the only God of the world's religions that deliberately puts himself on the hook of suffering. You see, what I want is someone to enter in and sit with me in my pain, to validate it and to experience it with me. And yet, in Christianity, it's not just a priest who does that. It is God himself who steps into it. And this is what makes Christianity, the Christian God, so beautiful. Because in every other religion or worldview, they have to deal with this question of pain. They have to. And if I reject God, then not only do I have to answer the, the, the question of why suffering exists, I have to answer the question of why I have a problem with it. For Eastern religions, the question is answered by saying that suffering is an illusion. For moralistic religions, where I do good things and God blesses me, then all suffering is the result of sin. But in Christianity, Jesus does not come to explain suffering, but to experience it. Jesus doesn't come to philosophize our pain, but to feel our pain. In Jesus Christ, the Christian God, the holy three-person God of the Bible, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, does something utterly astounding. Jesus enters into suffering. Jesus experiences suffering firsthand at a level far greater than anything we know. This is uh, the promise that the Bible has been saying from all time, from the beginning through the end. We see um, 
famously in Psalm 23, right? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, though I am next to death's doorstep, and I am in the most God-forsaken place, you remember what it says? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they, they comfort me. You remember uh, when Daniel, in the book of Daniel, uh, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into the furnace? You remember uh, they're thrown there into the furnace. And Nebuchadnezzar looks into the fire and he says, wait, how many did we throw into the fire again? And they're like, three. And he says, why are there four people in there? There's four people because Isaiah 43 says, when you pass through the waters and when you pass through the fires, when you go into those places, I will be with you. And the Bible doesn't just mean this in some kind of spiritual, metaphorical way, but Jesus actually enters into our world. Jesus experiences hunger and pain, literally. Jesus experiences racism and classism. He experiences homelessness and war. He experiences terrorism and government crackdown. He experiences corruption and religious hypocrisy. He experiences a family torn apart by death and a family torn apart by favoritism. He knows what it's like to be bullied. He knows what it's like to be written off. He knows what it's like to be called crazy he knows what it's like to be forgotten by your parents for days on end literally like actually historically in this world on this earth in this air we're breathing he actually experienced those things firsthand and why 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 to demonstrate his love for us hebrews chapter 2 this is printed the citation for it is printed in your bulletin, but I didn't read it at the beginning of our time because I wanted to get you here. Hebrews chapter 2 uh, says that because his brothers, because human beings had flesh and blood, verse 11, since the children have flesh and blood, Jesus too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. And then he keeps going. He says, surely it was not angels he helped, but it's Abraham's descendants. He's basically saying he didn't come to save angels. He came to save human beings. Verse 17, for this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, that he might become a merciful and faithful priest in the service of God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. It will say in the same book a few verses earlier that Jesus was perfected by his suffering. It's a strange verse, but it says that Jesus has entered into our suffering, that he feels it truly. And on the cross, he experiences a level of suffering far greater than anything we can ever know. Think about this with me. When you lose a precious object, I lost two class rings from my alma mater, and now I've lost two wedding rings. This one's made out of rubber because my wife stopped buying real ones. No lie. It hurts. I was sad. When you lose a favorite pet, it hurts even more. When you lose a spouse or a child, the pain is even greater still. And Jesus lost something that was of eternal value in order to find you, in order to rescue you. There on the cross, he cries out in agony and pain, not just because he's being tortured to death physically, 
because he is laying down his relationship with the Father. As he takes on our sin, he is separated from the eternal love of his dad. Something he has known from time immemorial, since before time was built, from all eternity he has been at the Father's bosom. And now he cries out in agony, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You see, what you are going through may hurt like hell, but it is as close to hell as you will ever be if you are a believer. Jesus, on the other hand, descends into hell in order to, rec- in order to rescue you. He himself goes below you. Goes, you may be standing on rock bottom, but the rock you are standing on is Jesus because he's gone down further than you to rescue you, to build you back up, to claim you. And so rock bottom, it's solid ground. And it is not as lonely as you think. And you are standing on the rock. Even non-believers recognize this. There's a famous philosopher named Albert Camus. And he says this. He says, Christ, the God-man, suffers too with patience. Evil and death can no longer be entirely imputed to him because he suffers and he dies. The night on Golgotha is so important in the history of man only because in its shadows the divinity ostensibly abandoned its traditional privilege and lived through to the end, despair included, the agony of death. Thus explains the Lama Sabachthani. My God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? In effect, the God has cried in agony. Friends, Jesus didn't give you the answer to why suffering exists and resurrects action, but he does give you the answer. He does tell you what it can't be. Suffering does not exist. It can't be because God doesn't love you. It can't be because God doesn't love you. Because for God, loves us enough to suffer with us and for us, to redeem us, to heal us. And it can't be because he's not all-powerful, but because he sees not just the death of Christ in our place, But on the third day, we see the resurrection of Christ and the promise that all things are being made new. That all things will be put back to rights. That everything sad will become untrue. That that we will not just receive consolation in heaven, but we will receive the restoration of all things. That we will not just uh, get some kind of participation prize at the end for the life that we lost. We will be restored the life we always wish we had, that we, 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 we never knew was possible as we experience uh, the resurrection of our bodies and, and the joining of heaven and earth. You see, in the resurrection, what happened on Sunday, what happened on that first Easter Sunday did something miraculous. It transformed the cross from this instrument of suffering into a sign of hope. It turned it from a thing of blood to a thing of flowers, from something to be feared to something that men and women would beat out of gold and hang around their necks. It transformed the most awful day in history into the greatest day in history. It transformed the evil that killed Jesus into the work that accomplished our salvation. And I believe that when we get to the other side, when we get to God's perspective, we will see that everything that felt like a sledgehammer in our life, that felt like a wrecking ball, was actually a scalpel. That everything that felt like it was smashing us was actually just a syringe that was that was preparing us for what was coming next, that there is a great dam holding back the great tide of evil in the world and in our lives, and we will see that from the other side. I'll finish it with this quote 
by a, a man who knew suffering firsthand, a dude named Dostoevsky. He was a Russian who lived through uh, communist oppression in the gulag, and he and another dude named Leo Tolstoy helped support and undergird the faith of many a Russian through their literature. And he says this in a quote that blows my mind and hurts my heart and makes me pumped for what's coming. Tolstoy says, I, I mean, Dostoevsky says, I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for. That all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage. Like the despicable fabrication of the, impot the impotent and infinitely small Euclidean mind of man. That in the world's finality, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all crimes of humanity, for all the blood that they've shed, that it will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify all that is actually done. John Stott said, I could never believe in God if it were not for the cross. given up on God. I beg you to look at the cross. You see a God who doesn't necessarily explain suffering, but he enters it and he puts a redeemer in it. Let's pray. Thank you. delaying judgment so that you can destroy evil without destroying us, that you can destroy all wickedness and injustice without destroying us. I pray for hearts that need comfort this morning, that they will feel your presence as real as the skin on their body and the breath in their lungs, that they will know there is no suffering they walk through alone, there is no depth of suffering that you will not descend to in order to rescue and comfort them. That you are the God of all comfort and the Father of all compassion. Pray, Lord Jesus, for men and women to have faith. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Not because we have to, but because we get to. Because we are already loved. We want to participate with what God's doing in the world by giving them our tithes and our offerings. If you're new here, this is your first time, we don't want your money. We wouldn't invite you to our house and make you buy dinner. But if you are a member here, regularly here, we invite you to worship God with the gifts of your time and your money.